Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute that analyzes and celebrates both the diverse and common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jen Hatto. Across this season's episodes, we've heard from a wonderful group of guests who represent a multitude of different diaspora groups and different diaspora experiences. We've discussed how we can define diasporas, the relationship between art, film, and diaspora, influence and activism, identity formation, transgenerational diaspora experiences, cultural education, and so much more. Today on this version, we're doing things a little bit differently. On today's episode, the staff of the Zorin Institute are sitting down to debrief on all we've learned over Dispersion's inaugural season. We talk about some of our favorite moments, conversations that changed our perspective on the diaspora experience, and where we see the field of diaspora studies going. To get us going, I'm going to invite the team to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about their connection to Zorian. Megan, let's start with you. Thanks so much, Jen. Um, so. I am the Deputy Executive Director of the Zorian Institute, um, and I've been here since 2015, and I'm really looking forward to this new new initiative for the Institute, this podcast that will hopefully bring um, some of our academic work to a more general, everyday audience. So thanks so much, Jen, for, for introducing us. It's fun to have you on on this side. I'm just used to, used to you in the back side, but Jenna, maybe you go next. Thanks, Jen. So I'm Jenna, not to be confused with our wonderful host, Jen. Uh, <laughs> I started with the Zorian Institute as a program assistant back in 2019 and was fortunate to be in that role for about two years. But now I'm back in school completing a graduate degree in public policy, but I couldn't let go of dispersion. Uh, it's been a, an incredible project to work on, and I'm currently assisting with the production of the podcast through audio editing. And last but not least, Ali. Thanks, Jen. So I'm Ali. I am the new program assistant at the Zorian Institute. Um, I only started a few months ago, so I came in to Dispersion um, closer to wrapping up the first season, but I was really excited about the initiative. I always love to hear people's stories, so um, it's been wonderful to be a part of. Wonderful. Well, that makes up the team. Between the four of us, we're going to talk a little bit more about what inspired Dispersion and why we wanted to do it and the impact we think it's made uh, humbly over its first season. So let's start at the beginning. Um, Megan, tell us a little bit more about why the Institute wanted to start Dispersion and what were the goals that we set out for this season? Yeah, so the, the Zorian Institute has been a pioneer in diaspora studies um, since 1991, when it established its academic journal, Diaspora, a journal of transnational studies. And this journal really brings all the different themes of diaspora studies from an academic and scholarly perspective. And so what we were hoping to do with this podcast is to really bring these complex themes and theories to an everyday audience and kind of make it relatable through storytelling. Um, and that's kind of what our goal has been with this podcast. So we've we've heard from amazing guests, who, we'll get into that later, but we've heard from amazing guests who kind of have a, a conversation with one another. And we get to learn a lot about diaspora studies, but through conversations and everyday conversation with one another and, and different diaspora groups. So it's been a really great experience. Um, and I think it's a, a new way to engage an audience at Zorian that we haven't really had in the past, um, one that's kind of just interested in the in the topic and and 
and in the stories that are being told and not necessarily is going to read an academic journal. So um, it's hopefully a new way to get people involved in the Institute's work. So we're really excited about it. And Meg, I think you touched on kind of a part of the origin story, which was just conversation. I remember us having conversation after conversation, kind of casually in the office about diaspora experiences and what we learned talking to kind of people who were involved in the field or in when we were reading articles themselves. But it was much, much more interesting or much more applicable to have those more general conversations. So it's, I know for me, it's been really interesting to be able to bring that to a bigger stage, kind of out of just our little team meetings and on to what has involved more people and, and helped us grow as well. So Jenna, for you and Ali as well, for you working maybe more closely with the journal as well in your roles, how has it changed and how do you think Dispersion's goals have brought a new element to the Institute and how we talk about diaspora studies? It's been, I think, something new for the Institute to try working with diaspora on this platform that it's up and coming being podcasting. So I think we're really trying to capture the fact that diaspora is becoming more popular both in academia as well as in pop culture and especially with younger generations. Um, so we're trying to capture sort of the increasing trend of popularity. And we thought a podcast would be a great way to do this. Um, and it's also just such a digestible medium. It's really fun. It's light. And it's a great way to like just have these conversations that people want to talk about, but don't really have a place or a space to talk about them. Absolutely. Ali, for you, I liked in your intro when you mentioned that you like hearing people's stories. And I think obviously that's what dispersion revolves around. It's anecdotal, it's anecdata, it's people sharing their experiences. What do you think it is about the simple act of someone sharing a story that helps us connect or relate? And, and why do you enjoy that so much? Well, I think in this case, I mean, diaspora studies is such a huge field and there's so many very um, theoretical aspects of it. Um, and I think that when people share their stories, it really, as Meg said earlier, um, it really brings things that are very abstract to the more real life side of things. And you can connect with people's stories um, and these themes on a greater level. So, um, and as somebody that doesn't ide identify as part of a diaspora, I just, I'm always amazed at just the multiple multiplicity of um, people's experiences. And I think that's just it. And it's, it's not unique to diaspora studies. Um, anytime we talk about experiences on mass, we realize, or I think at least it comes to light how different we all experience similar things. But what we've seen across this season is just the absolute multitude of different ways you can approach being part of a diaspora. So my next question, and one of my favorite questions that we're going to get into today, in talking about stories, let's build off that a little bit. What is your favorite anecdote from the series and why? Yeah, so I think mine, there's so many, and it was very hard to narrow one down. Um, but I think one one that comes to mind is in Ravneet's episode with Taiwo. And she speaks about how um, she has used social media to raise awareness about current events happening in her homeland of Punjab. Um, and she explains how sharing updates and um, news articles on, on Instagram or on her Instagram stories or on Twitter can actually engage like a new Canadian audience and a new 
it kind of broadened the reach of, of how far this information is, is transferred. And I think it's my favorite anecdote from the series just because I personally have learned a lot from Ravneet. Ravneet was um, a colleague of mine at the Institute, actually. You'll learn that from from her episode. And so when she was sharing these stories, particularly from the farmers' protests that took place over the past year, I wanted to learn more, and I wanted to learn more from her. And I did learn a lot from what she was sharing. I knew uh, how to, to support organizations that she was sharing. I learned a lot about her history and how she identifies with her with her identity as a Punjabi Canadian. So I think that was maybe my favorite just because I could actually see uh, the how it worked. Um, and I kind of had the behind the scenes of, uh, yeah, it actually does create this ripple effect through Canadian society um, when diaspora groups share with their, their social networks. So I think that was maybe one of my favorites. That was a good one. And what I, I really enjoyed about not just that anecdote and Ravneet sharing her experience with social media, but we were able to talk in that episode about collective action, but then have her examples of individual action and how they complement one another in the diaspora experience. Jenna, how about you? What was your favorite moment, anecdote, story, memory? This is definitely a tough question, but upon reflecting about it, I keep going back to the episode with Deepa and Adam. And at one point, Deepa shares a story about how one of her films, I, I believe it was Water, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Water was you know, being filmed in India and at some point it was literally shut down by the army. And the reason why had to do with identity. Um, the, the complex, you know, she had this idea of what the film was going to be about, but it was received very differently by the government and the people. So I think that just, first of all, it's just a fascinating story to have your film <laughs> shut down by the government, but also just shows like how complex and how powerful identities can be. Absolutely. Deepa and Atom's episode was great because it took these conversations, again, about individual experience, but it reminded us that they do have a bearing on a larger stage, uh, especially when we're talking about representations in art and media. Um, I really enjoyed that episode as well. That's a good one if you haven't listened to it yet. Ali, last but not least, what was your favorite moment from an episode this season? Yeah, mine kind of actually goes off of Jenna's. Um, in the same episode, Deepa said, all art is political. Um, and I found it really interesting to hear about both hers and Atom's experiences um, creating films surrounding about issues in their cultural homelands um, and how throughout their careers, they've been heralded as spokespeople for their communities, but they've also been attacked by both their home and host um, land communities for various issues. Um, and I think it just really points to one, the power of film to move people, but also just how challenging it is to represent diverse and human and diasporic experiences through art um, and the tensions for them about producing films to start a dialogue as they mentioned and tell abstract stories that are personal to them um, but then also this responsibility to tell stories that are based on facts to teach people so there's kind of this tension between I guess, art in the abstract and then um, reality. Yeah. And that tension, Ali, I think you're getting at 
perfectly. What I remember listening or and partaking in that conversation was the the push and pull as for them as artists and as filmmakers in speaking so much about identity, the impact that had on their own feelings about their identity and how that changed over time. And that leads me well into my next question um, because that episode for me, I learned a lot from, and that was something, a new element to diaspora and diaspora studies that I hadn't thought about very much before. So I'm curious to know from all of you, which episode in particular, or maybe moments from multiple episodes that taught you something new about diaspora or diaspora studies as a whole? Jenna, I think I want to hear from you first. For sure. Um, so I think for me, the episode featuring Marta and Lily uh, that focused on cultural education and continuity uh, definitely taught me a lot of new things. But in particular, in, in diaspora studies, from what I uh, have been introduced to, we tend to focus on like the concepts and the non-tangible ideas of what it means to be part of a diaspora group, the feelings and so on. But Lily in particular, she came in and she talked about like how her organization does these concrete things and intentional activities to preserve and celebrate and share Latin American culture. And you know, one program that she mentioned in particular was uh, a singing group or a choir that would select traditional songs and just sing together. They actually ended up moving this choir to Zoom. So like, first of all, that's such a beautiful way to share and protect culture, but also an interesting way to see diaspora studies sort of come to life in a community uh, and in, in a very intentional way, especially as it moved to the virtual platform. Like you can be you know, 5,000 kilometers away from your homeland, stuck at home in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and yet the culture still finds a way to come through and, and continues to be a very important aspect of people's lives. That's a great one. And I think it goes to show, and it went to show in that episode, that diaspora is an active experience. I think so often, and even across our season, we've talked about it um, as memories or kind of as past experiences. But that episode really highlighted that being part of a diaspora is a very active experience. It's something that's with you maybe every day or something that you work into all aspects of your life. And I think that the example, especially of the choir, that one's really stuck out to me as well. Megan, for you, what was something that uh, you learned or uh, something new to diaspora for you this season? Yeah, the the one that comes to mind um, was in Chang's episode. And he's speaking about his relationship with China. Um, and I found this like to be a really interesting episode because he, he doesn't really um, identify with his homeland the way you would think someone would. Um, and I, I think that was interesting for me because in, in diaspora studies, it's, there's, I don't know if there's any rules and I don't know if having these conversations, I'm kind of learning that everyone's experiences can be different. Um, and his was so, and I was wondering like if it was the way the link between how a family migrates or how a family moves to a different country um, and assimilates or doesn't assimilate. And I think the reason for that shift may have a lot to do with how they identify and their relationship with their homeland. And I found that really interesting. Um, and I think this was the first time I've kind of heard of an example where they don't have strong ties to their homeland um, and they've really embraced Canadian identity. So I thought that episode taught me a lot that, uh, yeah, maybe there aren't 
cut and dry rules with diaspora studies and that there's exceptions and that everyone's experiences can be different um, while being similar. But but in, in Chang's example, I just thought this was a, a really interesting fact that came up mm-hmm. and a very, a very different story. And that episode, we also had a conversation about the kind of homeland, hostland boxes. And we got into mm-hmm. a little bit more about how those are boxes that maybe the Institute and its very academic focus previously has worked nicely within. And if you read kind of academic diaspora papers, those labels are really useful for theoretical analysis. But in day-to-day life and, and in people's experiences, do they really work? Can you really neatly package things like that? So Meg, yeah, I'd have to agree with you. That one was a moment of, oh, okay, this is much more um, specific and unique to the entire journey of someone becoming part of a diaspora than it is to just a, this was my homeland and this is now my hostland. And Ali, for you, of all the episodes, which one or which moment taught you something new about diaspora studies? I actually found that same episode very interesting. Um, the way that Chang spoke and the way Athena spoke, and they they use this analogy of uh, a transplanted seedling throughout the episode. Um, and for Chang, he very much... Um, sees his uprooting and I guess replanting as something that allowed him to establish himself um, and, you know, pursue his goals and that kind of thing. Whereas Athena discussed more of a sense of loss and what she called um, spirit injuries. And I, I was wondering how much that Experience and their identities were shaped by their experiences of migration. I think um, Athena said her parents came as economic uh, migrants, whereas Chang's family um, or mother was uh, left China for fear of um, persecution. And I would be interested to also see what that kind of experience plays out like in I guess, is it one and a half generation or second generation members of diaspora? Um, And if those similar sort of senses of establishments or senses of loss play out differently within the next generation. Mm -hmm. And how that, again, we go back to this individual experience versus collective and how different communities may experience that as generations go on based upon if en masse they moved countries for a specific reason, like when we think about genocide or mass violence um, or mass migrations. Um, And I'll also add another part that really stood out to me in recording the first season was when Regine talked about um, the things that really sparked her interest in returning um, to her homeland And I think a lot of literature really focuses on human ties to a homeland. Um, But in her response, she talked about so many aspects um, from, of course, people, family, friends, but then also the geography, um, the fruits, even something um, like the smell when you Uh, get off the plane. And I just, that really stood out to me because I think it's something that isn't discussed that often. But then when you think about places that hold sentimental value to you, um, 
it's true. Like I think about the places that I love and it's, it goes so much deeper than just um, the people. So that was something that was just really so simple, but yet so um, profound. And the way she put it was just, it just really stood out to me. Yeah, those were all really good episodes in terms of bringing a new element to what, how we think about diaspora studies. So kind of building off of that, it's a bit of a similar question, but was there a guest or an episode that shed new light on the experience of being part of a diaspora? Um, most of us don't, as in most of us here on the call today, don't um, consider ourselves part of diaspora. So we're in this amazing position where we get to just hear about other people's experiences and try and quantify them. So if you had to pick one moment, um, Allie, let's start with you. I know you just spoke, but was there one moment across the season that made you really stop and think about the experience of being part of a diaspora? Yeah, for me, the um, moment that really stuck out to me was when Talar was talking about her gendered experience in the Armenian diaspora um, and how, you know, while the Armenian community is very modern and forward thinking, gendered experiences within the community are quite different or our gender norms are quite different than um, what she was used to in her family and in Canada. Um, and that influenced how she engaged with the community. And I just thought that was a really interesting insight. I'm always interested in gendered experiences of things. Um, any, yeah, any sort of um, experience, but that one just stood out to me. And I also really appreciated how open she was about only being able to speak to her own experience and not really understanding mm. the nuances of gender norms within Armenia, because um, I do think it's such an individual thing. I mean, some people lean into it, some people sort of detach from it. Um, and yeah, I just, it was a great learning experience for me. That was a really interesting episode. Um, we talked about transgenerational identity and the differences having we just talked about generations a second ago and how that changes people's experiences over time. Um, I know if I was picking an episode that really shed light on being part of diaspora, that one was great. I think because we got to speak, we had two generations, father and daughter, um, and we looked at how they related to being part of the same diaspora. So Meg, for you, which, which episode would you highlight that shed new light for you? Mine is actually the same one. So um, Talar is speaking in this episode, she's speaking about how um, her friends were fully immersed in the Armenian diaspora here in Toronto and how they, they seem to have struggled less with their sense of identity at a young age. And I thought this spoke a lot about um, belonging and kind of how either being fully immersed in a diaspora group or a community or being kind of more assimilated into Canadian culture and what that does to a child at a young age or an adult um, for their sense of belonging. Um, and in Talar's case, I found it interesting that she struggled um, more as a child, not kind of being fully immersed in, in the Armenian diaspora community where a lot of her friends you know, would um, go to schools, Armenian schools, or go to day schools on the weekend. Um, and I think they struggled less with with who they 
were and their Armenianness and their connection with the homeland. So I found that that was a uh, shed, shed light on a new experience for me, that sense of belonging. Yeah, I got that a lot from that episode as well and how identity and how we consider it changes so much over time. And it's a very personal thing, but yet also impacted by our external circumstances. Like you say, like it depends um, if you're going to school or you're surrounded by the language and how that changes over time for you. Jenna, for you, which episode or which guest was it that shed new light? Yeah, I also really enjoyed that episode that both Megan and Ali spoke about, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I think the episode with Athena and Chang really shed some new light on the experience for me. Um, as you mentioned, Jen, like I'm a white woman born and raised in Toronto. I've been super privileged to, to live in an extremely multicultural neighborhood in Toronto, but I don't have a particularly strong connection to one place or another, or even one culture or another. I don't have the experience of trying to navigate being part of one or even two diaspora groups. And I remember, you know, speaking to Athena, she, her mother, I believe was Filipino and her father from India. She shed light on this ongoing struggle that she had in, you know, growing up and even possibly today to find a sense of belonging in a country where, you know, you look so different from everyone else. And that was super interesting to hear about. And then in the same episode, hearing Athena and Chang relate to one another about having lived in Alberta for a short period of time and sort of having a similar experience of not feeling like they fit in, but at the same time coming in from such different cultures and experiences and even conceptions of diaspora. So like seeing them relate about one thing, but coming from such different experiences, I think that really um, showed how complex and how how common even diaspora experiences can be. It was really interesting. And that's one of my favorite moments. I know this is not the question, but one of my favorite moments from the whole season was having or, or being part and witnessing that exchange because it really got at the heart of what we talked about at the beginning of today's episode of why we wanted to do this podcast, that we were motivated by this concept that experiences are, are so different. And we've heard from people who have vastly different experiences across the season but we've had these moments and these glimpses of similarities in their experience and Jenna you bring up probably one of the the most clear examples which is people who'd lived in the same place very different backgrounds very different lives and lifestyles at the time but they were able to come together and have this moment over a shared experience um, while exactly what you said retaining a very different diasporic background um, and then the element for me as well of hybrid identities, we talk about it in multiple episodes across the season, but just for me, that was something I was interested to, to see new light shed on uh, in terms of how it, how you experience being part of multiple diasporas um, two, three at one time. So building off of that, which conversation in particular highlighted a topic or a concept within diaspora studies that you'd like to see more of? So we're kind of future thinking here. Was there something that sparked a little kernel of interest um, and made you think, yeah, that's what we need to be talking about more as we move forward? Uh, who hasn't gone first? I don't know who to pick on. Uh, Allie, I don't think you have gone first. Jenna, you haven't gone first, have you? I have, and I'm going to pass <laughs> on this one. I still need to think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who wants to go first? This is a hard one. I can, I can Meg, go. Meg, you have an answer there. Yeah, I want. you have two. I want to hear about both of them. 
Okay. So I think one kind of area that stands out for me, and I'm not sure if it's in academic scholarship, and I'm sure it is in some form, but Atom brought it up in his episode about being how he never really expected to be a spokesperson for the Armenian community or specifically the Armenian genocide. And I think it's interesting that we kind of, in every diaspora group, you can kind of think of a famous person or this spokesperson or someone who's kind of put on a celebrity figure who's kind of put the the pressures on them to kind of represent their homeland and represent uh, an identity. And I I think this is really interesting because you have some people, like this is just um, coming to mind, but you have people like Kim Kardashian, Mm -hmm. uh, who was really influential in, in recognizing the Armenian genocide in the United States this past year. So it's just really interesting how, um, yeah, these public figures are kind of made to be these spokespeople in their diaspora communities, but also to represent their homeland. So I wonder if that could be something that's studied more and kind of like the downfalls to that, the the good things about that. Mm. Um, I'd be interested to learning more about that. I would too. And Jenna brought it up in the beginning when we were talking about um, kind of, again, the why about dispersion, but this element of pop culture and how mm-hmm. diaspora is starting to or at least maybe we're starting to pick up on it more, um, representations of diasporic experiences in pop culture. And I think that goes hand in hand with what you're saying, Meg, that we're we're almost kind of default putting people or putting celebrities and public figures on a bit of a pedestal and expecting them to have um, opinions on experiences. But again, I would be interested to know how what the impact of that is on their own identity, right? We've talked at length across the season about how identity is changing and it's very personal and unique and specific. Um, So it must be a very interesting um, and somewhat daunting experience to then be expected to speak about your and represent your community. Um, So I, I would have to agree. I think that would be interesting to see more of an academic approach to that and how that's going to then contribute to the field of diaspora studies itself. If that's our kind of one of the main forms that people are learning about different diasporas. Ali, for you, what's something, or Meg, if you have your other example, um, whoever wants to share. So yes, in Regine and Zhao's episode, Regine brought up the topic of race and how this can dramatically change one's diaspora experience in both the hostland and the homeland. And I thought this was really interesting. And I think exploring how race and being a visible minority in Canada um, and how that shapes one's sense of belonging and acceptance in Canada, but also when they return to the homeland, is something that um, I think could be studied more in in diaspora studies, um, but also maybe something we might want to touch in in future episodes as well. We touched on it briefly in Chang and Athena's episode as well. Um, And as I mentioned, I think it could be worth exploring as a standalone discussion and maybe more prevalently in academic research. Um, For me, I think in Rabneet's episode, uh, she discussed the role that stories and storytelling of her parents and grandparents played in her um, drive to kind of act as an activist for her um, homeland and diaspora community. Um, 
and also the role it played in creating a shared identity within her community and a sense of re resilience. Um, and then in their respective episodes, Marta and Athena also both mentioned how trauma and shame of victimhood um, inhibited old, older generations um, from sharing stories about their history and experiences with younger generations. Um, and I've seen that in um, friends, parents, and that kind of thing. Um, and I would just be interested to learn more about this idea of storytelling within um, an inter intergenerational storytelling, maybe more specifically, um, and how that shapes diaspora communities and diaspora identities, um, and what's shared and what isn't, and what the kind of driving forces are for sharing and not sharing certain stories. Yeah, and I, I think I would be interested, building off of that, in in how that would then reach out to so many different um, concepts. We, we mentioned trauma, Ali, so it would be interesting to see scholarship or kind of projects undertaken looking at trauma within diaspora communities and how it's managed or how it's not managed. And you start to pull on all these different threads. And that's something I love about diaspora studies and I think is really fascinating. Um, in reading the journal, you see articles that touch on so many different topics that aren't they're not siloed. Diaspora studies is really the way it's moving. It seems to be extending into so many different topics and other academic fields. Um, and I think that's really exciting and really positive. Jenna, for you, where where would you like to see or what's the topic that sparked some interest for you? Thanks, Jen. Yeah, I was just thinking some more about this. And I know we sort of touched on diaspora and politics in the episode with uh, Ravni and Taiwo. But I think uh, learning more about diaspora politics would be really interesting. I'm not too sure how extensively this has been covered in the literature, but just thinking about, you know, how, to be honest, it was uh, Megan who brought up Kim Kardashian that made me think of this. <laughs> <laughs> so just thinking about how, you know, we have really powerful people from different cultural groups who have never lived in you know, a country or, you know, but they're still tied to the culture. They're still tied to some of the politics. So I think it would be really interesting to, to know more about how these politics and these relationships are managed and how much power diaspora groups can have to influence internal affairs of the countries from which they come from. And, you know, do people in these countries want that? There may be a very big disconnect between generations, between um, from wherever the diaspora groups settle versus back in their homeland. So I think this would be really interesting to, to learn more about. And I'd also be interested in how, because we're so interconnected today, right? Like that's such a cliche thing to say, but globalization and the way that we relate to other countries. To me, I would be interested to know diaspora groups here they're they're juggling both so they're juggling what's going on in their homeland and staying in tune with politics there taiwo mentioned that a lot in his episode um but then also the politics of their hostland and how do those two things go together what about the relations between those two countries and does someone who is from a diaspora now in their new hostland have a very are they in a pointed position to then speak on that um and how it relates like 
what came to mind, Jenna, when you're talking about that is my, both my parents are British, both still hold British citizenship there. And when Brexit was a thing, um, they both had the opportunity to vote and to, and they haven't lived in the UK. We've been here 13 years now. Um, Mm -hmm. And they both had very different, mom, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'm sharing your story, but, (laughs) but they both had very different opinions. Um, One really felt that they had a right to partake in that discussion and really wanted to share their opinion. And and my mom didn't. She felt she didn't live there and that her opinion, though it might have been important, was was maybe like almost a step back, if that makes sense, that it wasn't going to have a bearing on her life because she didn't live there anymore. Um, and I think maybe has since changed her opinion on that since the outcome. But but yeah, I think, Jenna, that's a really interesting point to bring up that even if it's being explored, how can we explore it further and the impact that politics and diaspora have on both people in diaspora and then people not in diaspora? And, and Jen, if I can build off of a point that Jenna brought up as well, I just thought of it now when she brought up like where she you're not sure how the homeland feels about that. And I think it would be really interesting to kind of look at homeland, the homeland's perspective of how diasporas are being, are representing the homeland, if that makes any sense. Like it would be great to have their, their insights and their perceptions about how um, I'll give the case of, for instance, the Armenian diaspora, people living in Armenia, how do they think that the people living in the diaspora are accurately representing uh, what life in Armenia is like, what culture, identity is like? Um, are, is it a reflection of what is real, of, of what's actually happening there? Um, yeah, I think that would be really interesting to explore. A little further as well. Yeah, Meg, I was going to bring up the Armenian example as well. And maybe it's just because we're somewhat more exposed to that kind of in our work with the Institute. But that's the one that comes to mind because there seems to be a lot of like back and forth between the homeland and the hostland in the Armenian case and this idea of representation and advocacy mm-hmm. in, in an interesting way. Your people in the diaspora are advocating for change in the homeland, but exactly are they advocating? correctly? Are they advocating in the same way that someone living there and experiencing the issues that they're trying to tackle actually wants? And I think maybe, and this is completely my opinion, that could be way off. But in terms of academia, I think because of the way the, the study of diaspora has developed, we had the core kind of traditional diasporas who were expelled or kind of were forcibly migrating. Maybe we looked a little bit more about at their experience in in resettlement or in forming diaspora communities. And maybe now it's a good time to turn back the other way and look at what the homeland's experience has been and and incorporate all these elements of how people feel or how it affects politics and change and policy and law. So that brings me to our last question. Um, And I think this will be a really fun one to answer. So what's one topic you'd like to hear more about in future episodes? Maybe it's the things we just talked about, but one topic or one element of the diaspora experience that you think we should talk about more. I'm happy to start. (laughs) I actually have an answer for this one. And it's not going to surprise any of you because it's something we talked about in depth in kind of planning. I would like a whole episode about food. And I just, we've touched upon it in episodes and, and experiences, but I think 
food would be a fascinating um maybe we can we can elevate it and it doesn't just have to be food but as a vehicle for people to talk about their experiences and how they relate and has food been something that's helped them um retain part of their homeland culture or has really getting into the food scene in their host land helped them uh, settle and kind of assimilate and become part of a community. That's something I would love to to hear because I think everyone connect, can connect on food and food has some fantastic core memories attached to it. So that would be my answer is food. <laughs> um, does anyone else have an answer or something they'd like to hear more about? Yeah, Jen, you know you stole my answer. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I do, but we've talked about food so much yeah and we didn't get to talk about we didn't get a whole episode on it this season um so my little heart needs one (laughs) next season yeah yeah I'll just echo yeah big foodie so I would love to hear a discussion on food tradition how culture can be explored and shared through food and like you said Jen it's just like something we all need and we all connect with it brings us Mm -hmm. together it's it's like music it's like language um, everyone is united over sharing a, a good meal, good in particular. <laughs> I think maybe we're also a bit biased because we're living and working in Toronto, mm-hmm. being such a an epicenter for multiculturalism and food. Um, as someone who no longer lives in Toronto, I miss the food and I miss the absolute plethora of restaurants. So I think that could be a cool element as well in in how community restaurants and restaurants that become complete cornerstones of communities, um, how they relate to diaspora. Do they, are they vehicles for diaspora experiences? All that. Um, yeah. Megan, Ali, what, what's something you'd like to see in the future? Yeah, I was just actually, you kind of just touched upon it just now, but um, it would be really interesting to see how different communities, because we're talking about the diaspora experience within Canada, um, within Canada, how their relationship with food and how that influences their connection to their culture um, differs within Canada, because I do think in Toronto and, well, particularly Toronto, maybe Montreal, um, and some of the city centres, we have so many options and we have amazing cuisine, but then in some of the more rural parts of Canada, or even, I mean, I'm from Victoria, like, my, my husband's Sri Lankan, but you can't even get um, like a lot of the ingredients for Sri Lankan food within Victoria. So um, is there more of a loss that in that sense in smaller communities? Yeah, across the country, how that differs. We were able to hear a little bit about that in terms of other experiences, like just in living in different cities, but we didn't get to talk about yeah, like the more nitty gritty of what makes up a diasporic community. Meg, for you, other than food, unless it's also food. I mean, I would love an episode on food, but I do have something else (laughs) as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But food's going to happen and we have to make it happen. Um, I really think, so I'm basing this off of Lily's episode. And she speaks about how um, she is part of, the Latin American diaspora, but she is a Brazilian woman. And I I think it's worth exploring kind of this um, 
when we lump numerous countries together into a diaspora group, like a Latin American diaspora or an African diaspora, I would just love to explore kind of what that means for someone's identity, if they feel that they're fully being represented um, within that kind of lumped category, or if there are benefits, if there are shortcomings to that. So I think that would be kind of something I'd love to explore a little bit more. Um, and it, there may be a lot of scholarship on it, and I'm just not aware, but I think that it would be interesting to have conversations with 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 people about this and their relationship with that. Yeah, and, and that's like a, a bigger terminology question as well. Like what, how are we defining diasporas and, and are people kind of self-defining? That would be a really good one. I'd be interested to hear from people within those diaspora groups how that label relates to them and if it doesn't, why not? And what would they prefer? I think maybe also worth mentioning, and I'm already grimacing at the fact that I'm bringing it up, is the pandemic and, and how the pandemic has influenced diasporas. I know a little while ago, the Institute looked at kind of digital diasporas and this whole online world and how people connect um, and become part of diasporas or find themselves in part of communities virtually. Um, and I think we'd be amiss not to explore that one as well. And I think that could be really interesting and in how people have stayed connected and stayed connected to their culture as well. But that wraps up our wrap up. Um, that's all we have for today. So thank you for tuning into this episode of Dispersion. My wonderful team, thank you for sharing your stories and what you found and your experience um, in making this first season. It was really wonderful to look back um, and to celebrate the stories of our guests, who we thank endlessly for taking part, and also to get excited about the future of diaspora studies. I think we've covered it really well in that it's such a growing and expanding field, and it pulls together so many different elements of other fields that it's really fascinating to be thinking about it and talking about it. Uh, so thank you all. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. thank you so much, Jen. This has been an amazing experience conducting these interviews and speaking with these amazing people. And uh, I thank you as, as our host. You've done an amazing job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so if you've missed any episodes of Dispersion, you can find the full seasons across Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and Acast. And if you're interested in more about the Zorian Institute and ongoing projects and initiatives, you can read more at zorianinstitute.org or find us across your favorite social media platforms at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Zorian Institute.